0: Don't, hey, don't, get too used to these, don't get too used to these nice chairs in here. We like to have it more like a metal, cold, misery. It keeps people awake. You have a couch too. James is heading over there to make herself at home. We got leave these decorations up all the time. It's nice. Um, so today I wanted to cover too many things. So it's unrealistic, I know my limitations, but I, I think it's worth noting, I wanna talk a little bit about Thomas. I didn't get to bring that into the sermon, and um, and then also the 175th anniversary of the Missouri Synod. So we'll start there, and then if the Lord gives us time for Luke, then we'll jump into Luke. If not, we'll pick up there next week. So um, 175th anniversary of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and this isn't necessarily my area of expertise. I mean, I'm not really a great historian, um, but it's worth noting one of the the... Lutherans are only, only 175 years old of what we refer to as Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Obviously the Christian church is much, much, much bigger than that and goes back much, much, much further. And we don't want to err in thinking that we are the only church, right? So we kind of, just to get that the history is helpful. So kind of, I'm gonna paint with a broad brush here. But after, because someone turned me down, I'm a little bit hot. Uh, turn down the um, microphone it 's working so well You're keeping it awake. Steve is it well oh, it 's starting to get fuzzy, just a touch, James. They figured out that the mic, I guess the, the core that this thing was set up with has been set up wrongly, which is why it was always inconsistent and in why it was working. Now we got it fixed um, so so think back to reformation. Reformation happens I mean fifteen hundred and seventeen is famously the ninety five theses. Um, but that's not the, necessarily the, the heat of the Reformation kicks in five years later. I mean, time kind of slowly unfolds. Luther gets his catechisms out about 1520, His excommunication, everything that follows. But we're still way back in the 1500s. Luther dies in 1546, I believe. And uh, after he dies, it was the classic, all right, the, the head dude is, the head guy is down. The captain of the team gets hurt, you know, kind of swoops in and tries to recover what was lost. The Catholic Church, uh, there's a lot of fighting from the Catholics amongst the Lutherans, a lot of, a lot of serious persecution. It's, a, it's amazing to look back and see what Christians were doing to one another. It's, just, it's like almost foreign to us to think, why would they? So just to be clear, they both believe in Jesus. <laughs> uh, but, but at the same time, they also show what they were willing, not... Unfortunately, what they were doing to one another, but more importantly, what they were willing to endure for their faith—that is, what they were willing to let—hey, you know, burn me at the stake because I was confessing the gospel. Fine, I know where I'm going. So, to have such a zeal is is, um, commendable for sure. So, uh, 1500s, we get into the 1600s and 1700s. You get into it, especially in the 1600s, a second. Uh, like a second uh, Reformation, there's a second Martin. Martin Chemnitz comes along, and you get this Luther-like resurgence that comes up in the 1600s. Meanwhile, Luther, what we refer to as the Confession of the Lutherans, is spreading, um, a- and it starts with the a confessional sub- a subscription to basically L- what Luther was saying about the Bible. Not not that the not Luther is in any way like some kind of an authority, some kind of divinely revealed authority. But it was an objective, common voice that you and I can both say, okay, I believe the Bible is God's word and I believe the gospel is this. And you believe the Bible is God's word and you believe the gospel is the same thing as me. Okay, well, that also happens to be the same thing that Luther was teaching. And so that's kind of, it was Lutherans, we're only, getting, we're only giving them that name, not because we are following what Luther was teaching, but what Luther was teaching was simply this clarity of, gospel from the Bible. And so Lutherans were kind of finding one another and the, uh, what the Lutherans gave at the, August, the Confession of, uh, Diet of Augsburg um, was what we refer to as the Augsburg Confession. Luther wasn't even there. It was it 1530 Augsburg Confession, around 30? This is Schumacherian territory, I'm, but he's not here so I can make up stuff. <clears throat> Around 1530, they give, see Lutherans, the Lutheran princes uh, give their confession to the emperor and his, all the little guys whispering in his ear are all from the Catholic church saying, these guys are heretics. But the Lutherans are simply saying, here's what we believe, uh, kill me if you want. I mean, they even say, knelt down, cut off my head if you want to. And um, the, 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 the Pope's famously like, or the, the, the emperor rather, famously saying, no, no, no head off, no head off. In his broken German, because he didn't even speak German. So the, the confessions were given in both German and Latin, and people were translating back, back and forth. So no head off, no head off. So that confession of what is the gospel, if you were to go back and read the Augsburg Confession, which, like our elders have recently studied it, uh, you're certainly welcome to study it. It's easy to find online. If you, if you were to read it, you'd be like, well, yeah, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Who is Jesus? How are we saved? What is the church? How does God deliver salvation to us? Here's what we believe on the sacraments. Here's what we don't believe on the sacraments. Here's what we believe about God's word. Here's what we don't believe about God's word. It's a very clear, comprehensive confession of what we believe. And so people were able to say, that's what we believe. So that it became what was called confessional Lutherans. We gave this confession of faith that unites us objectively. And as you get into like the 1600s, more, more heresies popped up. So just as, in fact, the creed is the same way. Um, we had the Bible, but then you had false teaching or, or heresies regarding stuff that was in the Bible, and yet it was, being, it was being mistaught. And so people are saying, well, I'm a Christian, and yet I don't believe Jesus is God. He's a pretty strong man, but he's not God. So and you're saying, wait a second, I'm a Christian, and I believe Jesus is God. In fact, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian if you don't believe Jesus is God. And so... They wrote the creeds. The church got together in council, which is all basically bishops from all the areas, surrounding regions, would get together. Bishops would be like regional, man, human, humanly elected um, leaders, all got together and said, "Here's what here's what it means to be a Christian," or at least here's what we are all saying. And also, by the way, they did the same thing with the Bible. They weren't saying, "We're going to determine what." what is God's word and what's not, what's not God's word? That's not how the history goes. They were all saying, here's all the books that we've been treating as authoritative for the last few hundred years. And here's all the books that we know to be false. And they rejected those as heretical. And they, and they, they came up with what we refer to as the Bible, the canon, those books. It was all determined by the pastors and, 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 and leaders in council. But they wrote those creeds in contrast to false teaching of the day obviously the creeds don't go after any of the big heretical issues that we're facing in our day but they were facing the big heretical issues of that day that was the creeds written like the 300s two and three hundreds four hundreds as you fast forward to luther's time with the confessions the lutheran confessions also formed similarly, not just saying what we believe, but especially saying what we believe in contrast to the false teachings of the day, which at the time of Luther was, the abuses within the Roman Catholic Church and how the gospel is being compromised there. And so when you read the Lutheran Confessions, it's obviously gonna be strongly cl- trying to be clear in their um, condemnation of the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and also the other abuses that you and I would recognize in. Like generic American evangelicalism, where, for example, one a, a classic one would be like um, in the Augsburg Confession regarding baptism, it, it 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 confesses what baptism does according to our Lord's word, and it's clear to say what baptism is not, because the Anabaptists, which we were, which we would know as the ba- essentially the Baptists of today, the Anabaptists had a different teaching about baptism, and where rather than it being a a saving gift through which God works to give salvation. It was actually a work that you did. It was the first, it was your first act to demonstrate publicly your sincere belief. mean, think about what that just totally changes what baptism is. And also that's why they wouldn't baptize babies. You wouldn't be baptized until you were old enough to make a decision for Jesus, right? And mean it deep in your heart. And if you were, if you had been baptized as a baby, which everybody at the time was, cause they're all Catholic or Lutheran. And then they're they saying, well, I, when I was a baby, I didn't, I wasn't like, I didn't make a decision when I was a baby. Now that I'm 20, I've made a decision. So now I have to actually be baptized for real. I'll be baptized again, anabaptism, anabaptists. Narrow that down to just Baptists. And that's what we have today. Uh, anyway, so you've got these, all these confessions that are formed in response to false teachings of the day. And then you fast forward like another hundred years, in, especially in Germany, you get what's called the, the, this, this um, government mandated force between Lutherans and the Calvinists. Which, I mean, today, I was talking to a Calvinist last night at the auction. They're like one of our few remaining allies in the world as far as Christians because they believe the Bible is God's word. Uh, we have very, very different beliefs regarding how deep our sin goes and therefore uh, the, the how much our will does or doesn't have to do with salvation. And, and the sacraments, therefore, are also very different. So you start with the core differences, and then there's so much different beyond that. But considering how bad things are in the world today, we're kind of like... We find our allies and we embrace like the Catholics, for example, who were like killed. We were fighting wars back in the Reformation days. And, and now we kind of stand united in the March for life. Like only, the only people you can find are the Catholics to march with us. So we, 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 we're, but we're clear about what our differences are and why it matters. And I, I'm always clear to say, a person has faith in Christ, we'll see him in heaven. It's not like we're condemning these people. But we, do, we would say that the te- some of these teachings are problematic, they're inconsistent with the scriptures, and they can, it would seem, um, do damage to faith. When you start to preach a gospel in a way that, for example, leaves anything for you to do, it robs you of the true comfort of the gospel. We would say it's not the gospel. If, if you're saved by Jesus, and you really, really trying hard enough to be a good person, then now I've added me really, really trying hard to be a good person to the, to the gospel. And now I'm always wondering, have I really, really tried hard enough? So as I'm on my deathbed, I'm starting to wonder, have I tried hard enough to be a good person? And what's the devil come to remind me of? All the stuff that shows that you weren't in fact a good person, even the good stuff that you did that's been corrupted by your selfishness. So we wanna make sure the gospel is going forth with with clarity. Now, as we get into, so I was mentioning, the, just before the Lutherans came over in the early 1800s, you've got this union, this Prussian union, this forced, the Lutherans and the Calvinists, you, just got, you guys just gotta get along. The differences you guys have with one another from the government's perspective, they didn't care. You guys just need to work it out. Your differences are petty. And of course that's how, I mean, when you think about it in life, that's always the case, right? Every like what's what's worth fighting for to you is not what's worth fighting for to everybody else necessarily, and that was the case. The government said, "You Lutherans and Catholics just need to get along," and so they took Lutheran pastors and stuck them in a Calvinist church, and grabbed a, or a reformed or grabbed a reformed pastor, put him in a, a Lutheran church, and just like it took away the the comfort of the gospel, it took away the. Um, the authority of the office of the ministry. So people are sitting there saying, wait a second. So there's a reformed pastor. Um, It's not even about the preaching necessarily. Obviously the preaching would have been different, but also, so you're baptizing babies or not baptizing babies, or not baptizing at all, or giving the sacrament or not giving the sacrament. have a completely different confession of what the sacrament of the altar is, a totally different confession about confession and absolution, like we talked about today in today's sermon a little bit. So what was fundamentally the church from the Lutheran perspective. It's like all about the forgiveness of sins and that itself is being compromised. And they're at the point where like, I, I can't, I can't live this way. The comfort, the assurance of the gospel has been certainty. Uh, we're always after certainty. Like when people argue, not argue, but if, if you say, well, if, if my daughter Annabelle, if, uh, if she's so when I, when I say the words of institution in the context of the divine service over bread and wine, you have a certainty that it is the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so you know that the forgiveness one on the cross is being delivered to you. So then when I start tweaking that, removing myself or removing the practice of the Lord's supper from the Lord's institution, like when I say, well, how about instead of wine, we just use Pepsi, instead of bread, we use Doritos. Both owned by Pepsi. I'm sure they'd appreciate that practice. Um, is, it, is it, the? You, you said the words, and the words are the main thing, right, Pastor? Bodily eating and drinking don't do such great things, but the words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So I'll keep these physical elements. That's all that really matters. They're physical. And I've got the word, and you're sitting there saying, yeah, but that's not what Jesus said. So certainty starts to be in doubt. Or if my, um, i always chant the words of institution even though some of you don't like it, because I get to go home and hear my three-year-old say or sing the words of institution. She knows them, because if I just read them, she wouldn't know them, but she can sing them. So when she's singing the words of institution in front of her dolls, the doll mass, and she has a cracker and some lemonade or something, and she's not only female, not ordained, not even five. She misses half the words or mispronounce them and she's not giving them to anybody. But she said the words, is it the Lord's supper? Well, it's like, I, I, what I try to do is don't even go down that road Because the more we, that's an extreme example, reductio ad absurdum, right? It's a ridiculous example. But the idea is, the more we remove ourselves from the Lord's institution, the less certainty we have and the more doubt. And most importantly, it's not just doubt as to whether or not it's the Lord's Supper. The doubt is about whether or not your sins are forgiven. And that's where the Lord wants certainty. So that certainty was at stake in Germany in the early 1800s. And so the Lutherans who were willing to uh, just gave up everything. They sold everything. I mean, just imagine this. 700 or so, uh, I think it's the number. Fuzzy on that. Sold their stuff. It's just a really funny thing is like, some of the heirlooms of value they kept, if I remember the story right, that they had like three ships and they put all their belongings of, of value on one ship, which also happened to be the ship that sank on the way over. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. So, but they, so they come over and fortunately they bring with them a strong German work ethic. And so they're able to really make a, make a dent. I mean, they were able to, to start working. They, were, they, they wanted to work. And foolishly, they had been scouting this out for years and they, they wanted to settle south of St. Louis because it reminded them of like the hills of Saxony. And, what they weren't thinking of is, okay, if we're gonna farm this to eat, we have to cut down all these trees. And when you cut down trees, the roots don't just go away. It's very difficult to farm when there's roots, there are rocks everywhere. Have you driven in South St. Louis and you go, sort of winding through these big hills, it is rocky and tree. And you can read all these accounts of the mosquitoes, we're just tearing them up. And they're living by the river. And the first thing they build is a church. They're living in tents, they build a church, because the reason why we came is for the forgiveness of sins, God bless them. It's just amazing. So, uh, and that's just all it was, was Lutherans of a common confession of faith. People have been doing that for hundreds of years for various reasons and different church bodies also, fleeing persecution for one reason or another, whenever they could scrape together the money and get a boat and find a captain and hop on a ship and come over here with nothing but a dream. And this, really the hope of freedom, to be able to actually receive the certainty of the forgiveness of sins. C.F.W. Walther and uh, Stefan, I forget his first name, and Walther's brother, Edgar. No, I remember Walther's brother's name. Some other acronym, it's not C.F.W. Uh, they they're on the boat as pastors to these people and they come over and they just are serving faithfully the, those, those few Lutherans of a common confession from that area. But again, Lutheranism had spread for 200 years. So Lutherans are what we refer to as Lutheran, confessional Lutherans that I described earlier as people who ascribe to this view of the gospel, they're all over Europe by this time. Simultaneously, I mean, at the time of Luther, the Bible is translated into English over in England, the King James Version. And so you get this Reformation just is spreading like wildfire everywhere. People are all coming over to America for their religious freedom. But obviously, they don't find each other in the same way. Like right now, people are like, Pastor, I'm going to go to uh, I was just talking to earlier, Julie Chestnut. Going to, uh, her daughter's down in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where football dreams go to die. <laughs> it's for you, Keith. Yeah. And uh, so there's like no Lutherans down there. But you can find them. So she was all telling me about this church. There's like a very few people there. They have a vacancy pastor. But how does she find this? And what, so like they're able to find online... with the majesty of Google, whatever, find the Lutheran common confession. And so she knew I can go on Sunday to this church and hear the gospel and receive the certainty of the forgiveness of sins, the word and sacrament from this place because it says LCMS on there. Not that other people don't have it, but she wanted to know, I just wanna know what I get back home. Like if I'm over in Europe and I want a hamburger, and I see the golden arches, now uh, the question would be, why would I get a hamburger from McDonald's in Europe when you got such other fun? It's a different conversation maybe. <laughs> so Lutherans couldn't find each other. And so it took time, but over the years they were finding each other, networking. Uh, and so they were able to, I forget the original German name for the Missouri Synod, it's the, it's the Evangelical. So is confusing because the ELCA has that in their name, the ELC, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The Missouri Synod's original name was the Evangelical, and then all this stuff, Deutsche Evangelical, and then all these states, it it listed off like Indiana, Ohio, Missouri, Illinois, and other states. That was all the name, one name, like crazy. They abbreviated it down to what we call the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, only because they settled in St. Louis. That's where they kind of had their headquarters. And uh, churches, you have all these. You can go online. If you, you just Google this, there's a bunch of resources you can read about the, the um, more detailed history of the founding churches. What were the what were the main congregations that kind of came together? And then as you fast forward that history through, we got like that wasn't until the 20th century we started speaking in English in, in the in the divine service at least. Um, when you get like when the number one enemy that you're fighting all your wars speaks German and that's all you speak, it's probably time to start changing into English. But there's a, there was a reluctance to change because you lose things in translation. We all know how that goes. So there, it wasn't because they don't like change. That's also true with Lutherans. But, but also we, we also reckon the reason why we don't like change is because we know that very often change with, with change comes a loss of what is good. So it's not just we blindly don't like change, but there's a reason why we're doing what we were doing before. Anyway, so they, they were able to merge with the, or the English-speaking Lutherans in America. And so over time, the Missouri Synod continued to grow. So that's, the, that's the, in a quick nutshell, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, founding in 1847, 175 years ago this week, I believe. C.F.W. Walther was the first pastor... Of that group, I guess he was the founding pastor. The first pastor was actually accused of various sins of a sexual nature, and was allegedly. The history on this is fuzzy, right? Um, so whether it was just an allegation or truth, it doesn't really matter. That's why allegations, especially regarding the office of the ministry or any vocation, allegations are a big deal. Even if they're completely false, it taints the water, and so like if your pastor is accused of such things and you've got little children, you're like, "Um, you know, I I don't really buy it, but can we just go to a different church? Unfortunately, that was the case, whether or not that's the best construction on the history. He jumped on a boat, they sent him over the Mississippi River and he started Lutheran Church in Rosebud, Illinois where Tom Mueller, dad was a pastor actually, years and years ago. Um, So that's Rosebud, Illinois. But then C.F.W. Walther, whose who's less than beautiful portrait is in, in, uh, in, encapsulated in our stained glass window. As from your, from the, for sitting in the pews, looking at the pulpit, it's your back left, like third or fourth window from the left. On the bottom, there's this creepy looking demonic guy who's bald and bony. That's him, C.F.W. Walther who had a mental breakdown because he was simultaneously the pastor of like eight congregate, eight very, very large congregations and the president of the Missouri Senate. So he had, a, he had a breakdown, understandably and unfortunately. He'll tell us more about that in heaven, God bless him. Any questions on that? Sorry for that, that was a quick, quick rundown there. How are we doing on time? Good. The next thing I wanted to mention was, uh, is Thomas. So that today's gospel lesson gave us too much to talk about. The first half was Jesus showing up in the locked room, uh, to, so it's Easter evening. So the first it's the first Easter, but the context is always so helpful to to remember. Like Easter morning, they where everybody is. You have you have most of the disciples seem to have been gathered in one place. Maybe some something maybe over at Mary and Martha's. Remember, they had been at Mary and Martha's a few days before for the raising of Lazarus. And then they came from there into Jerusalem for Palm Sunday. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus are friends with the disciples, and they're very close by. But just enough out of town to be a convenient place to go if you're worried about being killed. So um, after the crucifixion, when they all scattered, they, they went somewhere together, except for Peter and John that seemed to have been somewhere else. Then the, the Saturday, so remember on Saturday, they couldn't go anywhere because it's a Sabbath day, which is why they had to break the legs of the, uh, the guys on the cross, because they wanted him off the cross for the Sabbath. And um, Jesus is, was already dead, so they needed to break his legs. In any case, they, they got him off the cross, were able to get him in the tomb, but they couldn't do all the ceremonial stuff to, to uh, embalm the body. So they couldn't do it on Saturday, so they waited in the tomb, and then they were gonna come back on Sunday to treat the body. So they show up early on Sunday morning, and um, from the Jewish accounting of time, a sunset on Saturday is really the start of the next day. So the Sabbath goes from from our accounting of time, sunset on Friday through sunrise on Saturday. Sunset on Saturday is all one day. So when the sun sets on Saturday, that kind of kicks off Easter. So somewhere before the sun came up, early, early that morning, the women are going to the tomb. And I mean, you're reading different gospel authors that are kind of giving this from different views and at different times, but basically you get, they come to the tomb, the the stone was rolled away, Jesus wasn't there. Some of the ladies run back to tell the disciples. Some of the ladies stayed, Mary Magdalene, there's an angel there. The others didn't see the angels yet, but they, the angel actually comes back and talks to them later. On the way back, somehow, uh, the ladies the, the angel says he's not here. He has risen. Our famous Easter greeting. So the Mary, and then uh, Mary's still kind of figuring this thing out. She doesn't hear the angel greeting. I guess there's the other the angels must appear to the other ladies. Mary didn't hear it. Mary's worried. Where is the body? And uh, and that so she finds the gardener and says. What would you do with the body? Just give me the body. And Jesus, I mean, just stunning words, Mary. And it's just like, I know that voice. Rabboni, teacher, uh, don't cling to me. Go uh, tell the disciples I'll meet them in Galilee. But they don't go to Galilee. And that's a, that, all that was a buildup to this point. <laughs> uh, why didn't they go to Galilee? Jesus said, go to Galilee. Don't cling to me here. I'm going to meet you guys in Galilee. Go tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And they don't go. We can, we can speculate. And, I, and uh, I, I would speculate that in part, at least, they're fearful for the... I mean, so, so let me go back into the timeline here. The women are going back. Some of the women had seen that empty tomb Mary had seen Jesus, the risen Jesus herself. She's sprinting back to the disciples. They tell Peter and John. Peter and John go, and they see into the tomb. They don't see Jesus, but they see the empty tomb. They're all excited. They're coming back. Jesus somehow appears to Peter somewhere in there. They're running back to the tomb. Jesus teleports to Emmaus, six miles, seven miles north, and uh, where you get the two disciples walking on Easter afternoon. And this a whole, like, why are you crying? Or why are you guys upset? What happened? And they're like, you've yeah, been living under a rock. The guy we thought was going to be the Messiah died. Um, and some people, some, some people in our group say that he is risen, but I don't buy it. We don't know what to think about these things. And then Jesus opens their eyes, So he unfolds the scriptures to them on how things were ultimately leading up to his death and resurrection. The entire Bible was leading up to that, time, that point. And then uh, they say, uh, don't... Uh, stay with us, Lord, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. Where we get our hem, abide with me. And they invite him inside to break bread together, which is Luke's same word for what he refers to as the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread. And so they sit down, and Jesus breaks bread, and their eyes were opened. They recognize him as Jesus, and he disappears. I always picture the bread falling. So the idea, Jesus wants to be known in his, he is present for us in the breaking of the bread. But when he disappears, he actually teleports somewhere else. But the the guys who are there, they're like, this Jesus, he is risen and they go running back to Jerusalem where the other disciples are now hidden. So it's been a whole day. So early in the morning, the women, they get the note from the women. So their women are claiming that that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't buy it two of the disciples, Peter and John, they had looked. I mean, so there's all this growing tension amongst them, you would imagine. I also like to think about how, you know how your families probably don't do this, but when families get together, sometimes it can be like tense. (laughs) Or even not even families, but like it's the idea of going on a, in a van ride with a lot of people, like youth groups are always this way, like the idea is if you're going a short distance, it's fun. But after like two days in a van with the same people, this natural like social hierarchy happens. And there's all this fighting and everything annoys you about certain people. And there's just, especially when something bad happens, then there's a flat tire and then everybody's tension escalates. So imagine the disciples, they're in that situation where this tension has seen to have probably been rising. It's at its absolute worst. Now you're getting these accusations that you don't believe me. Well, I saw the empty tomb and all this fighting, attention. And, um, and then in walks Jesus, peace be with you. And he shows him his hands and his side because he's not saying peace, like guys, calm down. But when he says peace be with you, he shows his hands pointing to the cross event, right? The peace that he's talking about is the peace one with God the Father. So we're at peace with God. Nothing in this world can hurt us ever again. And that's ultimately the peace that echoes through the church. It's, it's then sent out with the words of confession and absolute, or words of absolution. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. He breathes on them, sends them out to forgive sins. And they're just, and then he disappears again. Right about the time Thomas comes back. Now, where had Thomas been? Now, if you remember Thomas, one of the things he said before they, before they had gone to Jerusalem, Jesus had like predicted his own death. And the disciples were like, don't go to Jerusalem. And Thomas is the guy who said, let's go so we can die with you. So he's like super duper brave. And so maybe it is that he was actually the one willing to leave the room, leave the, that locked room. And I bet he was looking for Jesus because he would have heard the word from the women and Peter and John, that the grave was empty. And he's like, okay, I want to I see it. So he gets out of the room and he runs to the tomb. And who knows where else he's going? Where else could he be? Maybe he went back to Mary and Martha's place. I'm going back there. So he's wandering around and he misses it. Of all the people, Thomas is like, really? I was the brave. I, I'm the one who actually believed that you rose from the dead. I'm not looking for you. And so they say, Thomas, you'll never guess what happened. Jesus, he was here. He rose from the dead. What the women said was true. He was here. We saw it. No, not my Jesus. Now, here's an interesting point to stop. Why would he not have believed them? I never thought about this before. He had no reason. I mean, obviously, what they were saying was an unbelievable thing. But how more unbelievable, really, than raising the Lazarus from the dead that happened a week before? Or feeding the 5,000 or all the many, many things. They've seen all this. Not to mention, it's not like when you read the Bible, you have this recurring joke that happens where they're always pulling Thomas's leg. <laughs> it's like, like let's, let's, we're really gonna get Thomas this time. This it wasn't the case. <laughs> so why was Thomas, why was he like, why would he not, why he had no reason to disbelieve them? And that is a huge apologetic case that, we, that I, I think we can make still today with what we call the Bible, that is the New Testament of the Bible, is nothing other than the eyewitness testimony of those who saw the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, right? So we've got, and also Luke, who wasn't an eyewitness of the resurrection, but he says in the first verses of Luke that he has accounted, he's interviewed all the witnesses. So it's like the, he's giving the testimony of the witnesses. So all these people have seen the resurrected Jesus and they're telling us about it. It's worth writing down because it's actually not, otherwise it's not a believable thing. That's why it was worth writing down and spreading the word about. Because it was so earth-shattering, life-changing, unbelievable. Then they were willing to die for it, with nothing to gain. There's a famous scene, maybe it's not famous, it sticks out in my mind. At the end of, is it Godfather two? I think it's two. There's like this one like Italian guy who's like a cousin of the family, and he ends up ratting out the Godfather to the FBI or CIA or whatever it is FBI, I think. And he's supposed to appear in court and give his testimony that's going to ultimately undo Cor- the whole Corleone family. And the day before the trial, um, the the hit the, ma- the main hitman for the, the uh, consigliere. How do you say that? Consigliere, whatever because your last name is Salvino. He shows up and he says, he kind of gives them the story of what used to happen in Rome whenever there was this overthrow of power and the people who were, who were on the wrong side of the, the battle were given a chance to commit suicide. And then they were given the promise that their family would be taken care of. And he just gave them that history. And the next scene is that guy slid his wrist in the bathtub Because if he didn't, it was like, if you don't do this, we're gonna kill you and then kill your entire family. But if you do this, we'll take care of everybody. So flip that back to the disciples. Were their families taken care of when they were martyred? No. Was there a lot of money on the table to be gained by this? Now, to be sure, there was abuse in the Christian church when you fast forward 1,500 years, but not at the time of the disciples. They didn't have this like master plan. It's gonna really stink for us right now, guys but in 1500 years, it's really gonna pay off. So let's do this lie now and die miserable deaths. Like we'll be crucified upside down. So when they're nailing Peter to the cross upside down and he's slowly dying the whole time, like at the end of Braveheart, that violent scene, they're standing there with a knife at his throat saying, just admit that this was a lie and we'll end this. And he said, I can't do it. It wasn't a lie. And I know that I'm about to die, but, it only gets better from here, Ah, right? You're willing, so our eyewitnesses of our New Testament are giving us an, not a lie, not some kind of fabrication that they would have made up as a major conspiracy that's gonna be a huge fundraising campaign for the church in 1,500 years. They're not making up a lie that, that was gonna make them somehow popular or cool or whatever, because they all, they all died and all their families died in brutal, brutal ways. Some of the first, like Polycarp records like how like, young Christian mothers were just having their babies ripped out by the Romans, handed back to them. See if this raises from the dead. And the mom would say, no problem, it will. Ah, that's, a, that's, our, that's our heritage, right? These wonderful Christian. And so they're willing to write all this stuff down and die for it. These things are written. At the end of our gospel reading for today, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you also may have life in his name. It's worth telling you about because it's true. So that's our, in the same way for Thomas. So, Tom, so they remember how the women were told, tell the, go tell the disciples I'll meet him in Galilee, and they don't go. It's because Thomas is there, and he's saying, no, guys, I don't believe it. And I would bet not only is he disbelieving, but he's probably mad. Why would Jesus, if Jesus even showed up, if if it's true, why would he not appear to me? This is actually, a lot of times I'll encounter this with, with what masquerades as atheism. It's not atheism, but anger at God, which is actually a show of faith. Like, you're not gonna be mad at a God you don't believe in. But I can't, I, I'm mad at God because he let my daughter get leukemia or whatever terrible thing. So there's an anger with God. And I think that's probably more of what was happening with the disbelief of Thomas. He's, he's, mad, at, he's mad at Jesus. If he has showed up, why didn't he show up to me? Then, just a second, Dennis. I gotta, I gotta make my point before I forget what it was. Um, a whole week it goes by. So imagine that everyone else has seen Jesus. All Everybody else in that room has either seen Jesus, or seen an empty tomb, seen an angel, and then Jesus actually appeared in the room and they all saw Jesus with their own eyes. And so th- what are they talking about but the implications of that? How excited they must have been? Except whenever Thomas was around, it made him mad. So it's kind of like... Uh, I don't know, I can't think of a good analogy for it. But you know, you've got some great thing you wanna talk about, but you know it's really awkward for like people over there. So you know you wanna talk about it, but you're trying to be respectful, but also every time they hear, they get mad. So you're kinda of like, it's, kind of, it's, it's like maybe if you have unbelieving relatives that came over for Easter, and it's Easter. But you're like, every time, every time, there's always some deal we bring up. Whenever we bring up church, then Aunt Susie rolls her eyes and gets mad at us, and it's always this big thing. Right? So that's probably how it was in that week. They're all kind of talking about it, excited about it. Thomas is there. Every time Thomas hears about it, he gets mad, madder and madder, growing. They wanted to go to Galilee, but it, Thomas wouldn't let them. And they're waiting until Thomas gets on board, patiently enduring the unbelief of Thomas. Is that not our life with our unbelieving family? We are, we are the disciples in the room waiting for Thomas to have his eyes opened by our Lord. And the Lord, in some cases, will do it in our time, and maybe not. But we are the ones given to give that wonderful testimony that's been handed on to us, that Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's worth talking about. It's worth, it's everything. It's our life. And we just keep giving it, keep preaching it. And the Lord, he shows up for Thomas shows him his hands and his side, but then he commends those. He said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's talking about you and me, right? So he, he commends that. And really the, the mystery of faith, which Luke 10 gets to, that we're not going to touch today, but um, that the Lord is ultimately the one who opens eyes. In the same way that he opened the eyes of Peter, or Peter, uh, Thomas, he shows him his hands and his side. So he opens our eyes of faith through his word as well in his time. So then, uh, so then Thomas rejoices and gives that wonderful, beautiful confession. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Imagine the, the relief and the joy that the other disciples would have felt at that moment. Because they've been, they've been wanting it. They've been wa- hungering for that confession to come out of Thomas's mouth for a week. And finally, there it is, my Lord and my God. Oh, great. It's a relief. And it's not not the prayer that we make for our family, our unbelieving neighbors and the like. So to have that confession ring forth uh, of Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then, all right, let's get going. Let's go to Galilee. Let's do it. Let's, let's, Let's get going with the church. And then from that point on, they, they, they tucked their head down and with and the whole book of Acts recounts them going out with the forgiveness of sins, which was given to them here. And they just go out forgiving sins, telling people the gospel of sins forgiven, delivering the, the, the word and sacraments to anybody who would hear it. Dennis. Yeah. There's, a, there's So there's a, and we would argue too in the same way that we're, we're able to have this really great apologetic conversation. So imagine how, let's let's go back to use Thomas as a starting point. Uh, there, he, they give us this great, tremendous news they give to Thomas and Thomas doesn't believe. I won't believe it till I see it with my own eyes. If God exists, he'll do this miracle for me right now or whatever the, the, the claim would be for today. And yet, the disciples are, look, I, Jesus is going to do what he wants to do, but all I'm telling you is we saw him. And then they're having these conversations like, Thomas, when have I ever lied to you? Why would I be making this up, Thomas? Um, and that's what we're doing with the Bible. So the apologetic task today is, is making a case for the reliability of the testimony of the Bible because it is hard to process, because it is a resurrection from the dead—that's ultimately the main thing—which we don't see those, right? And then trying to reconcile an omnipotent God who is also all loving, who in, who allows suffering for Himself on the cross and still for us today. So that brings a challenge, and so that's our that's our conversation with the unbelieving world. It's like, yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to believe, but let's go back to this testimony that actually happened, Kevin. Yeah, it's I never thought about that. So not only the, the, uh, this, that was all this, this confusion that was building before and this frustration of wanting uh, of a clear expectation of a reign of glory and power, which, we, which we've been seeing among the disciples, we've been seeing in the disciples for the last two chapters in Luke. is this growing confusion over the nature of, of Jesus's kingdom. And ultimately he'll be the king who wears a crown of thorns. And uh, if, that's, if they're wanting a God of power, which is, old, I mean, this is that's a great. So that's also this mystery of unbelief today is all this, it's a demand for a God. If there is a God and if he loves me, then he'll make himself known according to my terms in, in power. He'll cure this disease and then I'll believe. Same thing that the guy in hell said in the, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Right? Just if somebody comes back from the dead and talks to my brothers, then they'll believe. Show them some sort of a magical thing that's contrary to, to nature, and then they'll believe. And in, that, in the parable, it's they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They have the word. Right. Right. It's not thing. And it's the same Look at you. Yeah. So, and by the way, you can, um, there's a number of books like this. Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, um, J. Warner Wallace, Cold Case Christianity, That that you just referred to. He also wrote a number of other things. These are all apologetic te- texts that are simply, we can't, you can't talk anybody into the faith. Um, but what the apologetic task is simply trying to hold up the reliability of the eyewitnesses. So why are you doubting what they're, that what they're saying was at least what they said? So that's the apologetic task. And it's pretty effective. I mean, really, many, many guys Uh, people have been, have uh, had their eyes open in faith because they have been pushing the Bible away for so long because they simply didn't believe the reliability of it. So when you see the reliability, then it kind of lets it in. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so making a case, always being prepared to make a defense for the faith, for the hope that we have within us, as uh, Peter calls us to do in 1 Peter 3. And that's, and that's part of this. Is it's, it's standing with Thomas in the, la- in the locked room because also notice, oh, uh, this, the, the entrance of children means I'm talking too long. So, but the, the other big thing, we'll wrap it up, It wasn't just that Thomas didn't believe them, but think. remember all that situation of fear and panic that was looming in that room when Jesus showed up and he showed him his hands and he said, peace be with you, and how that just brought this eternal peace into their disaster? Thomas was also missing out on that. So they wanted him to have not just believe in Jesus, but the peace that Jesus was giving out too. And that's ultimately our goal too, right? It's not like we just want people to believe in Jesus so that they believe in Jesus. It's because with that is everlasting life and peace and and all that that salvation brings with it, right? Good, well, um, next week we'll we'll hopefully wrap up chapter nine of Luke and 10. Uh, You'll feel free to pile your handouts back on the table on your way out and we'll use them again next week. Christ is risen. There is it?